Please open your Bibles to Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5, our text this morning is verses 12 through 14. We have been saturated by this great teaching of justification by faith alone. This has been permeating these first five chapters. The Apostle Paul is laboring to make this point, not only to emphasize that the Gentiles need justification, but it's the Jews that need to be justified before God. And it is more specifically toward the Jews that he says many of the things that he did in chapters 2 and following, because the Jews did have the law. The Jews were relying on their heritage, relying on their works in order to be justified before God or gain favor with God. And Paul has labored the point to say that you must be justified by faith and no one will be saved by the works of the law. And here in this passage that we go into today really really speaks to the very core of humanity's problem. As to why Paul has been saying the things that he has, he really elaborates even further in our text today as to why this is. Because this passage teaches us of man's corruption before God and why it is that we must be justified by another and cannot be justified by ourselves or by anything that we can do. He really answers the question, or he really gives us a greater understanding, rather, of why it is that we should exult in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. Because what he is saying here is based in that. This is the therefore. Humanity cannot save themselves. We are justified by faith, and we are to rejoice in the Lord through Christ because we have received the reconciliation. But he really goes into... The whole issue of why did we need reconciliation? What happened? Well, we say, well, Adam. Adam happened. But why are we affected by what he did? That's the question. Why is it that we are affected by what Adam did? If Adam sinned, that was his choice to do so. Why are we affected by his choice, by what he did? And this text touches on that really elaborates further on that. It touches, again, the core of humanity's problem with sin. And if we fail to grasp what the apostle is saying here in this passage, of what it is teaching us of our connection to Adam, we will also fail to grasp the connection that we have to Christ, who is the last Adam. This text is vitally important for us to understand and to grasp, because in doing so, This truth will heighten our adoration of our Lord even even more so. This passage also helps us to answer a few of the questions that we receive sometimes by unbelievers and sometimes by other, other Christians. By unbelievers or by Christians, rather. Have you ever heard this this question or maybe this objection to Reformed theology, for example? Well, what about those who have never heard? What about those who have never heard the gospel? See, I know for myself growing up, there was always this idea. No one really came out and said it, but it seemed to be implied that surely God will give everyone a chance to be saved, even those people that have never heard before. The gospel has to get to them. 
What about, what about them, those that have never heard? What does this passage say in reference to them? And this passage does help us to answer those questions for sure. It helps us to answer the question if you have someone who says, well, you have people that are out there that are not really hostile to God. They just say, I don't have enough evidence to believe. And they live fairly moral, upright lives of what we consider to be humanly speaking. Well, what about them? What does this passage say to them? And it does speak to them. What does this passage say? And I'll elaborate further. But what does this passage say about babies? And those that are mentally handicapped. What does it say about them? Because we like to say that babies are innocent and children are innocent. But are they really? Well, this passage speaks to that. This, this will help us to fully grasp our connection to Adam and why it is that we can answer these questions with confidence according to the word of God. To say, yes, God's word does speak to that. It does address that, and we can give an answer. There are many things here of what Paul says within our text today that he began to elaborate on in chapter 2. And just to remind you of that, and we'll, we'll probably look back at it. When he says in chapter 2, beginning of verse 11, For there is no partiality with God. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are just before God, but the doers of the law will be justified. Right here. For when the Gentiles, who do not have the law, do instinctively the things of the law, these not having the law are a law to themselves, in that they show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience bearing witness, and their thoughts alternately accusing or else defending them. On the day when, according to my gospel, God will judge the secrets of men through Christ Jesus. And in our passage, he's really going back to that. Helping us to understand even more. But again, this is, I pray, going to help us. Really to, to fully understand even more so of what Christ came to do and who he was. What was his intention but we have to understand our connection to Adam in order to appreciate what it is that Christ has done. And really, it all comes down to this reality. And that is that in the day of judgment, all mankind will stand before God and will be represented by one of two people. And that's what it's coming down to. So if you would... Let's stand for the reading of God's word and give honor to God's word. And we are looking at Romans chapter 5, beginning of verse 12, reading through verse 14. This is God's holy, inspired, inerrant, authoritative, infallible words. God's word says, Therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned, for until the law, sin was in the world, but sin, was not, but sin is not imputed when there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam until Moses, even over those who had not sinned in the likeness of the offense of Adam, who is a type of him who was to come. Let's pray together. Gracious God and our Father, 
Thank you. Thank you for your word. Thank you for what we learn from your word about our Lord Jesus Christ. Father, I pray that as we work our way through this passage, that the Spirit of God would apply it to our hearts, giving us understanding and produce in us great affections for Christ Jesus our Lord as we come to understand our state before our salvation and now our standing with you because of him. We pray that you bless the preaching of your word and may it accomplish all you desire in us. For in Jesus' name we pray and all of God's children said, amen. Please be seated. So again, as Paul has been laboring the point of justification by faith, he has proven his case. He assumes that he has in chapter 5, verse 1, when he says, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. He's made the point. He's proven his point. None can be saved by the works of the law. He talks about the death of Christ and the great love that God had towards mankind, not only in the experience of God's love in our life, but on the basis of which that love comes to us, which is Christ Jesus our Lord, who died as a substitute for us. He says in verse 8, But God demonstrates His own love toward us, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. We talked about he died for us in our place as a substitute. He took the punishment that is what we deserve. We talked about that. He satisfies the justice of God. And because of this great work of Christ, he goes into the blessings that come from that, as we went over last week, that having now been justified by his blood, justified by his death, the giving of himself, his offering, the sacrifice that he made, we are saved from the wrath to come. We have been reconciled to God now, and we will be saved by his life. He has brought us together, and because he lives, we will also live. And we exult in God. We rejoice in God. We praise God through our Lord Jesus Christ, because now we have received the reconciliation. Peace has been made. The peace has been made between God and man, and that was due to Christ and the offering that he made. Now, again, he goes into, really, why did we need this reconciliation? Why is it that man cannot work his way to the Lord? Why is it he cannot merit his salvation? Even if he does so well throughout all of his life, perhaps he lives a great moral life, why is that not good enough? And it's not good enough because of what he says in verse 12, that all sinned in Adam. You need to see and understand your connection with the first Adam. He says, therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. Death came in the world, sin has come in the world because of Adam. If you hold your place here, we'll just look back and we'll see what exactly had happened. We remember that in the book of Genesis, we're going to chapter 3, by the way. But in the book of Genesis, God made everything good. As the writer of Ecclesiastes says that God created man upright and he sought out other devices. But in the beginning, he created him upright. Now, as you study um, Reformed theology, you study uh, 
few different covenants. You have the covenant of works, the covenant of grace. <clears throat> and you have the subsequent covenants that are in the Old Testament that are part of the covenant of grace. You have the covenant of redemption that was with the inner Trinitarian uh, God himself as the Son agrees to come and give his life. And the Holy Spirit comes and applies the benefits of Christ's death and everything to those whom he died for, etc. But when it comes to man, there are two. The covenant of works and the covenant of grace. God created Adam. He created Adam perfect. He created Eve. Put them in the garden, this wonderful paradise. And he gave them one rule, one law, one command. Do not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. You can have any other tree, just not that one. And so theologians, when they're talking about the covenant of works, it's, it can be a little misleading, but in one sense, we see what God said to Adam. Basically, by your good works, you'll live. By your obedience, you will live. In the day that you eat of it, in the day that you disobey, you shall surely die. And so theologians, even though it's, it's, it's on shaky ground, as there's no uh, definitive text for this, it's most mainly implied. Theologians would say that this was Adam's probation time. That if Adam had kept covenant with God in that period of time, however long that period would have been, that he would have been confirmed in his righteousness and that all his posterity after him would have been born in the perfect, uh, in the perfect standing before God as he was created. The garden order that he was in would have been spread over all the earth, all creation. But as we recognize, Adam did sin. And in chapter 3, here's what occurred. Verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Indeed, has God said, You shall not eat from any tree of the garden? The woman said to the serpent, From the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat. But from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat it, eat from it, or touch it, or you will die. The serpent said to the woman, You surely will not die. For God knows that in the day that you eat it, eat from it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate. She also gave to her husband with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin coverings. They heard the sound of the Lord, the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Then the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? He said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid myself. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me from the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you more than all the cattle, more than every beast of the field. 
On your belly you will go, and the dust you will eat all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. And it goes on. So when you look at what happened in the beginning, and you recognize, this is one of the things that they talked about at the conference here just the other day, you recognize that sin is attributed to Adam, not to Eve. Sin has come in the world because of Adam, not because of Eve, because you have Adam who is the federal head of all humankind. He was created first. And you have a number of things that have occurred here that contributed to their sin. This is outright rebellion. This isn't just, you know, somebody made me look at this tree over here and it looked really good and so I ate. You have them rebelling against the Lord. You have them allying themselves with God's enemy, doubting what he said, doubting his goodness, doubting his righteous character because surely he's withholding something from us if he is not allowing us to eat of that tree. So they doubt his word, they doubt his character. They ally themselves with Satan in rebellion against him. This isn't just something small. This is something major. And so because of their sin, sin has entered into the world. Because of their sin, death has come upon all. Now, we see what Adam did. And just to touch on this very quickly, you see how Adam had broken the covenant of works. He did not obey the Lord as the Lord had commanded him to. But you see that the Lord did not leave them to their fate. Didn't leave them to the judgment of which he said would come. You shall surely die. They deserve to die then. They deserve to die in their sins. They deserve to endure the righteous judgment of God. But you see that God institutes the covenant, what's referred to as the covenant of grace. He makes the curse upon Satan. But then he promises redemption to the woman. He says it's like, it's like the Lord has both of them before him. And he says, I'm going to put enmity between you two. Satan, she allied herself with you in rebellion against me, and her husband allied himself with you in rebellion against me, but you cannot have them because I'm going to redeem them. And so the Lord institutes the covenant of grace that one is going to come who is going to crush the head of the serpent and in his feeble attempts to try and hinder the conquering king, He will bruise his heel. Now, back to Romans. This is what Adam did. Adam brings sin into the world. But you see that because he brings sin into the world, all people now sin. And why is that? Well, in the London Baptist Confession of Faith, we read this. Our first parents, by this sin, fell from their original righteousness and communion with God, and we in them. We fell with them as a race. For from this death came upon all, all becoming dead in sin and wholly defiled in all the faculties and parts of soul and body. 
they being the root and by God's appointment standing in the room instead in the place of all mankind, the guilt of this sin was imputed and their corrupted nature conveyed to all their posterity descending from them by ordinary generation. Their descendants are therefore conceived in sin and are by nature the children of wrath, the servants of sin, the subjects of death, and all other misery, spiritual, temporal, and eternal, unless the Lord Jesus sets them free. So here's what they're referring to, is that because Adam and Eve sinned, and Adam was the federal head of all mankind, he represented all mankind, just as a senator is to represent his state as he goes before another, or you have an ambassador that represents his country as they go before others. So Adam represented all mankind. And when he sinned, when he rebelled, we rebelled in him. And so his sin, his guilt is now imputed to all his posterity, all his descendants. Just as through one man sin entered into the world and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. Death comes as a result of sin. Now you can look at this in a couple of different ways, but we want to understand the biblical way, of course. You can look at this and say, well, Adam, Adam sinned, yes, but man is still born innocent, and he can still maintain his own righteousness, but most of the time you find people that follow the example of Adam and end up sinning. This is what's called Pelagianism. That you're born perfect, you can remain that way, as long as you don't follow the example of Adam. That was the great debate between Pelagius and Augustine in the 5th century. You can say that until man understands fully that he has broken God's law, that he is not, he's not culpable for it, for the guilt. Because there are many people that do not have God's law. So it's really just following the example of Adam. It's really that though Adam had blatantly broken the law of God, and that's why sin came into the world, that he's an example of that. We commit the same when we blatantly break the law of God, and that's why we still die. You can look at it as some kind of an internal instinctive um, moral code that is within us, as Paul talks about in Romans 2. But why is it that people still die? That's the question. Because there is no one, regardless of all these other theories, that you can remain in your righteousness, you can remain perfect, or that even children are born in a perfect state or an innocent state, then why do they still die? They still die because Adam is their federal head. And his guilt is imputed to all. And that's the problem. And everybody, everybody is now born in sin. Everybody is born in rebellion. Everybody is inclined towards evil because of Adam as our federal head, as the representative of all mankind. That's why we commit the same, the same sins as what Adam did. When you talk to any unbeliever, what's the problems? I don't believe what God said. I believe that God is trying to be too restrictive on my life because I want to live this way. He wants me to live this way according to what you people say. These things that I see in the world are pleasurable and I should be able to take part in them. Those are the same things with Adam and Eve. 
And because of that, because not only of the guilt of Adam being imputed to all in our own sin, we still die. The wages of sin is death. Death is a result of living now in a fallen world. Death is the result of sin being passed to all people. If that was not so, then it would be possible then for people to live perfectly before God. And anybody, anyone that can do that should then not die. But we know all people do die. All people die. Adam and Eve allied themselves themselves with Satan in rebellion against God. And because they did so, they represented all humanity. So we are automatically born sinners from the very, very beginning. So you cannot say that any baby that is born is innocent because the baby is now conceived in sin. As soon as the baby takes his first breath or has his first heartbeat, as soon as it's conceived, it is a sinner. Now, there is more to that, by the way. But, but you know, the, the very interesting thing that you also see is not only is Adam our federal head, and you see that because of his sin being imputed to all, that all are now under the judgment of God, all now die. But you also see, interestingly, you see the graciousness of God. If this is true, is what the scripture is saying, that all mankind deserves to die, and all mankind will die because of their sin and their rebellion against God, and it doesn't happen automatically, as soon as they take their first breath, then that does show the graciousness of God and allowing even the unbelieving and the unregenerate, the reprobate, to live lives that are enjoyable, to enjoy the things of his creation until the appointed time in which he brings them out of this world. There is a grace of God even there that you see. You see his common grace. So all mankind has their sin imputed to Adam, which then implies, of course, as we've been talking about, that all are guilty. All sinned in Adam, all are guilty. Now, he says something very interesting here that at the first glance, it's hard to understand exactly what he's meaning by this. But he says in verse 13, For until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed when there is no law. Now, what is he saying there? It could almost seem to be that, well, as long as you don't have the law of God, then there's no sin that can be imputed. There's no guilt that can be imputed if there is no law. But that's not what he's saying. Until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed where, when there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam until Moses. So we cannot use the excuse of all these people over here that have never heard or that have never had the gospel given to them, never had the law of God given to them. Surely God is going to give them an opportunity, but from what he is saying here, death still was in the world even for those that did not have the law. How is that if they're innocent or if they're, they're in a, a, a state of innocence because they haven't heard the law of God or they haven't heard the gospel, then why are they still dying? Well, they're still dying because they're guilty before a holy God. That's why. 
How do you make sense of the fact that Adam had blatantly sinned against God, and that's what he's referring to there, that even those who had not sinned in the likeness of the offense of Adam. Adam knew the law of God, Adam had the command of God, and Adam still rebelled against the explicit command that he had given. But nevertheless, you still have people dying from the time of Adam all the way to the time of Moses. All these people that didn't have the law of God. All these people that did not uh, know that they were blatantly breaking the law of the Almighty. And yet they still died. We can't just say, well, they must know the law of God or they have to have a knowledge of the law of God. The law didn't come, come really until Moses until you had the written law of God. What do we say for that 2,500 year period or wherever it was from the time of Adam until Moses? People are still dying. So it seems as if God is still holding them accountable. Still holding them accountable to Adam's sin. His sin imputed to them. J.V. Fesco, he elaborates on that further. He says, the inhabitants of the Adam to Moses gap died even though they did not transgress expressly, expressly revealed commands of God like Adam did. But if they suffered the consequences of violating the law, namely death, then God must somehow credit Adam's first sin to all people. God therefore punishes all people as if they had disobeyed his revealed law, even though they did not personally do so. In short, God imputes Adam's guilt to all humanity. Adam is the universal federal and covenantal head for the entire human race. So the Lord holds people accountable to breaking his revealed law even though they may not actually have his written revealed law. How is that? Well, we go back to Romans 2 said, right? For the Gentiles who do not have the law, the written law, do instinctively the things of the law, these not having the law or a law to themselves, and that they show the work of the law written in their hearts, their, heart, their conscience bearing witness in their thoughts, alternately accusing or else defending them. You have the Apostle Paul who says in Romans chapter 1 that God has revealed himself in creation and all are without excuse. Romans 1.20 So again, what he, is, what he is driving home here is the reason why you cannot work your way to the Lord. The reason why you cannot do enough good things. You cannot live the perfect life. You cannot live the great moral life. Even if you were to live the greatest moral life out of everyone in the existence of humanity, second to Christ, you still would stand before God guilty because you are standing and your representative that is, before, that is standing next to you before God is Adam. That's why you still are guilty. All these people that have never heard the gospel, all these people that have never heard the law, why are they guilty? Because they're standing in Adam. Adam is their federal head. He is the representative. Maybe not committing the offense in the likeness of Adam. But they still broken God's law as it was written on their hearts. Because man is created in the image of God according to his likeness. Then there are certain attributes or characteristics of God that are reflected within man. As man is created in his image. Now, we know that this doesn't mean that we look like God because God doesn't have 
body parts and, and God is immaterial. He's spirit. But when we look at the attributes of God that are reflected in man, we see that God can be, or God is good. Man can be good. God is, is kind. Man can be kind. God is love. Man can love. God has all wisdom. He imparts wisdom to man. God has all knowledge. Man can know things. So you have certain characteristics of God that are found in man as man is the one who is created in his image. And because he is created in his image, his conscience bears witness against himself whenever he wrongs another. His guilt is real, even though perhaps he can't explain why. All, all are guilty before God because all have sinned in Adam and his sin is imputed to us. And we cannot say that they must have a knowledge of God in order to be guilty before God because during that time of Adam to Moses, he says death reigned from Adam until Moses. Death prevailed. Death triumphed. During that period of time. And it can only be understood in the context of all mankind having Adam as their representative. And his sin imputed to us. Now, it doesn't help anything that we still sin. You will stand before God individually and you will give an account for your sin. Yes. But you're already born a sinner. And so everything that then comes after as Paul says in Romans 2, you're only storing up for yourselves wrath in the day of wrath. You're already guilty, and the life that you live in sin and in transgression of God's law only piles up the wrath that you will endure on the day of judgment. This is why we need reconciliation. This is why Paul is saying and calling the people to exult in God, to rejoice in God, because we have received the reconciliation, and it was through Christ. And that's what he's going into in the latter part of verse 14. When he says, who is a type of him to come. Adam was a type of him to come. As we talked about at the beginning, all mankind, when they stand before God on the day of judgment, will be represented by one of two people. Adam or the last Adam. So all who stand in Adam as their representative will stand condemned. All people will stand condemned who do not have the new representative. That's why it is so vital for us to understand our connection to Adam if we're going to appreciate our connection to Christ. How is it that Christ can come himself? We didn't do it. Christ lived the perfect life. He died the death that we deserved. He satisfies God's justice. How is it that we're connected to him? Because through faith, his righteousness is imputed to us. And he is the head of the body. He is our new federal head. But if you don't have the new representative, you stand before God in the old. The old representative. And again, it doesn't matter. 
It doesn't matter how great of a life that you live or what all good things that you do if you do not have the last Adam. It's worthless. It's all worthless. You think of the last Adam, you think of the Lord Jesus Christ, and you think of what it is that he did. You cannot divorce what Christ did from what Adam failed to do. Christ as the last Adam fulfilled what the first Adam couldn't. The first Adam was commanded to keep covenant with God, to fully obey God, obey God's command, which really was down to one. Tend the garden, keep it, take care of the creation, subdue the earth, have dominion over it. And he failed to do so. But the last Adam is doing the very thing that he did not. The last Adam, Christ, is the one who did keep covenant with God. The one who perfectly obeyed his law. Not just one law, but all of them. He perfectly obeyed the law of God. Was declared to be righteous. He fulfilled the covenant of works. And even in fulfilling the covenant of works, sin still has to be dealt with because God is holy and his holiness cries out for justice. And so this is why Christ not only had to live the perfect life and fulfill the covenant of works, which the first Adam could not, but also that he had to die the death that he did because he had to be a perfect representative of all mankind. And so he not only lived the life that mankind was supposed to live, he died the death that mankind was supposed to die, not only physically with his life expiring, but also to have the, so the sovereign terrifying wrath of God being poured out upon him. The very pains that the, that the damned will feel in hell, that he, they will experience in hell, is what Christ himself took upon himself on the cross, that he was punished for our sins. Justice is going to be what happens in hell. That's why justice had to be upon Christ and the very pains of hell to be upon him. And he satisfies the justice of God. And he rises again, conquering death making an open show of his enemies, that his enemies trying to hinder his, his work of redemption, trying to hinder him reconciling all things back to himself, as you, as you have Satan a number of times trying to lure Christ away. Like you come from the nations, I'll give them all to you. Just bow down. You can have them all. As long as you bow down to me. And this was not the way in which Christ would take back the nations. You have the Apostle Paul who says in Colossians 1 that he is now reconciling all things back to himself, whether things in the heaven or on the earth or under the earth, through the blood of his cross. He will have dominion. Whether you believe that happens before he comes or after he comes, he will have dominion from sea to sea, from the river to the ends of the earth, because he is fulfilling what the first Adam couldn't. And because he lived the perfect life as a perfect representative of humanity, he died the death that we deserve. He died the death not only physically, but spiritually, the spiritual death, the wrath of God being poured on him. He rises again, conquering death, conquering his enemies, making an open show of them, rendering Satan powerless, him who had the power of death, 
destroyed his works is what John says. He cast him down and judged him, as he says in John chapter 12. Because of his work as the new covenant representative. Now for those who are in him, when they stand before the Father, they stand before God on the day of judgment. It's not that, oh Lord, think of the great works that I've done for you. That means nothing if the first Adam is standing next to you. But if the last Adam is standing next to you, the new representative, the new federal head, then when you stand before the Father, well done. Your works up until that point, if you're not in Christ, mean nothing. And they're an offense to God because you're trying to gain your way to God. You're trying to work your way to somehow satisfy His righteous justice that is upon you by doing these small things in comparison to the sins that have been done in your life. But your works do matter. Your good deeds do matter. You, you, you don't do them in vain. So just as you stand in the first Adam and his guilt is imputed to you and you're already guilty and then your guilt piles on your, your justice before God or your condemnation before God, so too when you stand in the new Adam, the last Adam, the new representative, and his righteousness is credited to you, so that God looks at you and there's now no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. That the good works that you have done in service to Christ will matter. And you know the interesting part of all of that? You know we talk about rewards in heaven and all of that. The things that we do in our love and devotion to Christ. It's him who enables us to do it. And yet at the very same time when you stand before God... You talk about rewards. We don't know what those are. We have no idea. But if there are rewards in the sense in which we think that they are, there are, it's, it's all his doing. As the Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians 12, in regards to himself with all the other apostles, he says, I labored more than all of them, but it wasn't me doing it, but the grace of God in me. It's all going back to him. All the good works that God created in you before the world was. You were his workmanship created in Christ Jesus. It's all attributed to him. And when you stand with him at your side, the new representative, there is no condemnation. But in order to appreciate this, you have to see and understand our connection to the first Adam. Why we're guilty why we're under condemnation. His guilt is imputed to us. That's why another's righteousness had to be imputed to us. And that heightens our affections. That should heighten our affections unto the Lord to think, this is, this is where I am. Even if I had done everything great, I still have his, his sin imputed to me because I sinned in him. I'm still guilty. No matter what I do, that's why there is no hope apart from Christ. But that's when we look to Christ and we see you did everything and now I am found in you. You represent me. That's why we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. 
That's why, because he paid the penalty, my sin is forgiven. That's why he lived the perfect life that even though I fail daily, his perfect life, his righteousness is imputed to me. He tasted death for me. The death that I deserved, he endured it, and he endured it for you. He lived for you. He died for you. He rose again for you so that now that you are found in, in, in this new covenant with a new covenant head who is Christ Jesus our Lord. So to help us, you, you, you know, you have so many things that are in all of these passages here that just, that just not only drive home the, the whole justification by faith, but drives home the assurance that we should have in him. This is why, dear Christian, you cannot depend upon your own good works, as we've been saying for weeks and weeks and weeks. We need to keep saying it so that it, it, it plants in our mind. You cannot do enough good to get to the, the Lord. You cannot do enough good to gain His favor. Only one gained His favor. And you are found in Him, clothed in His righteousness and not your own. Even if we were like Job, the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? There's none like him in all the earth, a righteous and upright man. Even if you were able to be in that kind of a standing, but without Christ, it doesn't matter. So that's why you depend upon him. That's why you look to him outside of yourself and you look to him. And this is why Paul labors the point, no one will be saved by the works of the law. Even if you're doing well, you're still guilty. But we're God's covenant people. By the works of the law, no one will be saved. You're still guilty. How can we still be guilty? Because just as through one man sin entered into the world, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. That's why you're still guilty. And you can never rid yourself of that guilt. We're condemned because of the first Adam, but we're justified because of the last Adam. This new representative of mankind, the last Adam, brings to us this reconciliation with God. And it is for this reason that we rejoice in Him. That's why Paul's calling us to rejoice in Him. Because think of our standing beforehand. Having no hope. But now we have a sure hope. A steadfast hope. An anchor for our souls. When we look to Christ, we behold His majesty and His glory. And through faith we believe in Him. He says, Christ says, that all who behold the Son and believe in Him will not perish, but will be raised up on the last day. That is the promise that you have because of Christ representing you before the Father. If you don't know Christ, if you've never called upon Christ in faith, then you are still found in the first Adam. 
you are still guilty before a holy God. As Moses calls the people of Israel in Deuteronomy 30, so too we must heed these words. Moses says in Deuteronomy 30, verse 19, I call heaven and earth to witness against you this day that I have set before you life and death, the blessing and the curse. So choose life in order that you may live. That's the same call that we give to others, the same call that we heed ourselves. The Lord sets before us two representatives, one that will lead us to death, the other that will lead us to life. And he says, choose life, choose blessing, and that is only found in Christ. Let's pray together. Gracious God and our Father, thank you for this portion of your word. Thank you, Father, for all that Christ is. He didn't just make a way that we may come. He has ensured that all who are found in him, those whom you have given him, will be found in him justified on the day that we stand before a holy God. He died a real death for sin. He paid the real penalty for sin. Thank you for his work, for his, represent, his representation before you on our behalf. Thank you, Father, for his obedience. Thank you for his satisfying of your justice. Not only are we given a clean slate, but even if we were given a clean slate, that's still not good enough. We need righteousness, and we could never produce it our own self. But thank you for his righteousness that is credited to us, that brings us into favor with you. Oh, Father, I pray that the Spirit of God would move within our hearts, producing greater affection and love and adoration, appreciation for all that you have done for us in Christ. That our hearts would be affected tremendously that our desire will be to live for you even more father thank you so much for all that you've done for us though we are so undeserving may you be glorified in your people in jesus name we pray and all god's children said amen